please be seated. He is worthy. Amen. Please take your Bible on this Christ the King Sunday and turn to the book of Judges, chapter 21. We will be taking a break uh, starting now through the Advent season from our sermon series in the book of Acts this morning, uh, Christ the King Sunday, and then as has been mentioned before, the next four weeks uh, from now will be uh, Advent. We will celebrate Advent together uh, through Christmas Eve. We will, uh, we, every year we have a Christmas Eve service. We will have a Christmas Eve service this year, but Christmas Eve is on Sunday, and so we will only have the 1030 morning service on Christmas Eve, so make note of that. Uh, next year we will be back to having a, an evening service for Christmas Eve, but because Christmas Eve is on Sunday, we will just have the one morning service this year. Uh, and then we will get back into the book of Acts in January. So for Christ the King Sunday, Acts, or not Acts, Judges. I just said we're not doing Acts. We're in Judges this morning. Judges chapter 21, the very last verse in the book of Judges. If you're still trying to find Judges, Judges it's after uh, Joshua, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. The very last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, the Holy Spirit says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we confess together that we have no other king but Jesus, who is Lord of all. We would ask now that you would make our hearts believe, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, King Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets and the apostles to write your holy word. Amen. December 16th of this year marks the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. The Boston Tea Party, of course, was the first major act of rebellion by the American colonies that would lead to the American Revolutionary War. And independence from Great Britain. In the 1760s, the British crown was in debt, and so their parliament imposed a series of taxes on the American colonists. The Stamp Act of 1765, the Townsend Acts of 1767, both of these led to the Boston Massacre in 1770. And after the Boston Massacre, Britain repealed many of the taxes that they had imposed on the colonists, but the tea tax, the tax on tea, remained because the American colonists drank 1.2 million pounds of tea 
a year. That's a lot of taxes on a lot of tea. At this point, the American colonists began protesting the English tea, and they started smuggling Dutch tea into the colonies. This nearly plummeted the crown into bankruptcy, which led to the passing of the Tea Act by the British Parliament. The Tea Act did make tea a little cheaper in the colonies, but still held the tax on the ports, the, the colonial ports, when the tea arrived into the colonies, it would be taxed. So because these taxes weren't going away, the American colonists continued to protest taxation without representation. And on December 16, 1773, the Sons of Liberty boarded three docked ships full of tea from China, the Dartmouth, the Beaver, and the Eleanor. And the Sons of Liberty dumped 342 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor. It took more than three hours for the 100 colonists to dump more than 90,000 pounds of tea into the harbor. The tea in the Boston Harbor on that day would be worth about a million dollars in today's money. And on December 16th, the United States of America celebrates the 250th anniversary of our rebellion against the King of England. But today, on Christ the King Sunday, church, we have, but we must, acknowledge our rebellion, not against the King of England, but against the King of all kings, against the King of creation. Today is Christ the King Sunday. It's been mentioned already that this Sunday is the last Sunday on the annual church calendar. Next Sunday begins a new liturgical calendar year with Advent, and that calendar year will end next year on Christ the King Sunday 2024. So Christ the King Sunday is kind of like the New Year's Eve of the church calendar. And we end each liturgical year as a church, as the church militant, with the celebration of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of all things, and so it is appropriate that we end every year together as a church, acknowledging and celebrating the kingship of the Lord Jesus if you follow along in our church scripture reading plan, you know that uh, this past week we read through the book of Judges. We just read through the last verse in the book of Judges, uh, the beginning of this sermon. The book of Judges ends with that refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's interesting because the book of Judges is like a microcosm of the history of humanity's rebellion against God and our need for a king. We were made to have a king. And so on this Christ the King Sunday, as we think about this microcosm, this small picture of our state, our need for a king, we're going to look at three things from the scripture. Number one, the reason we need a king. Number two, who the rightful king is. And number three, the right response to that king. Number one, the reason we need a king. Number two, who the rightful king is. And number three, the right response to our king. So the first thing that we need to acknowledge is the reason that we need a king. This is counterintuitive to us as Americans because our identity is grounded in our rebellion against a king. And so it's, it's offensive for us to hear that we need a king, that it is right and good for us to serve a king. But in that case, we are wrong. And God's word is right. You see, God's word tells us that when God created the world, that God created Adam in his image, and God created Adam to be God's priest king on earth. Adam was given dominion. That word dominion is evocative of sovereignty and kingship and authority and rule. Adam was given dominion over the garden, and Adam was commanded to take dominion over the entire world. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So theologians have long referred to this royal priestly work of Adam as Adam's federal headship. Adam was created as the federal head of humanity. Adam was the first man. He was the first human. Eve was created from Adam and then Adam's sons and daughters would come from Eve. All of humanity comes from Adam who was created by God from the dirt. Adam is the first man. Adam is the federal head. Adam was created to be the priest king of the world. He is our representative before God. Adam was created to rule over humanity and to intercede between humanity and God. But Genesis 3 tells us that Adam rebelled against creator God and fell in sin. And because our federal head sinned, because the first man sinned, because our priest king sinned, now all humans are born in sin. We have a sin nature. And that sin nature then causes us to sin. 
We confessed just moments ago that we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone, that we have not loved God with our whole hearts, that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. That's true of everyone. Pastor Mike read from 1 John 1.8 that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Romans 3.10 says that none is righteous, not one. Quoting Psalm 14, Psalm 51. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So the problem for all of humanity after Adam's fall is not only that we are guilty sinners... Though that's true. That's a big problem. That we are guilty sinners. That we deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell because we have rebelled against the king of kings. That's a problem. But that's not the only problem. The problem is that our priest king, our federal head, Adam the first man, is also a guilty sinner. So we don't have anyone to intercede between us and God. We don't have a sinless, law-abiding, righteous king to rule over us in righteousness for God's glory and for our good. This is a problem. Because God created the world to work that way. God created Adam to be that. Of course, this was no surprise to God. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to redeem this fallen, broken people through his son. And so in Genesis 3.15, God gave Adam a promise. In Genesis 3.15, God gave Adam a promise that there would be another priest king. And that this second priest king, that this last priest king would come and he would lift us up from Adam's fall. There will be a new federal head of humanity. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the biblical narrative and redemptive history reveal why that first gospel promise of Genesis 3.15 is so good and why it's so needed. And the answer is because we're so bad. Within one generation of Adam's sin in the garden, Adam's son murders his other son. And from Cain and Abel to the flood, where in Genesis 6, it says that Yahweh surveyed the world and saw that the intention of the heart of mankind was only evil continually. And from the flood to the Tower of Babel, where humanity comes together in rebellion against God, saying we're going to make a monument to ourselves. The dysfunction of the patriarchs 
the enslavement in Egypt, the golden calf idolatry, the complaining and murmuring in the wilderness, through the conquest of the promised land, the saga of sin then reaches its climax in Israel by the end of the book of Judges. And if you uh, read along with the scripture reading plan throughout the book of Judges, then you know that the book of Judges ends with a story of a man who takes his concubine uh, to a village in the tribe of Benjamin. And the men of the tribe of Benjamin want to sexually abuse the Israelite man And the Israelite man gives them his concubine instead. And then the men of Benjamin sexually abuse the concubine to the point where she dies. And then the man who avoided the mob takes her dead body back to his home and he chops her body up and he sends it all throughout the tribes of Israel. Happy Thanksgiving. It's messed up, right? It's twisted. Judges 19.30, Israel says such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. All of this sin that continues to escalate throughout the history of humanity leads us to this very last verse here in the book of Judges, this verse that we began our sermon with, this refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Murder, idolatry, sexual immorality, pride, All of these sins, all of these breaking of the Ten Commandments, all of this rebellion against God's law, all of this everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. How does that happen? What's the core of the problem there? What needs to change? In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's the problem. The problem is there is no priest king to intercede between God and the people. There is no priest king to rule the people in righteousness. The Holy Spirit reminds us here that the core of the problem of humanity's sin is that we need a righteous priest king. The book of Samuel immediately follows the book of Judges And this is where Israel now gets her first king. And the thinking, at least from a literary perspective, if you were just reading through the Bible, reading through uh, the story of redemption, uh, literarily, it would seem like, okay, they're going to have a king. This is going to solve the problem. That, of course, is not what happens. But more importantly, we do see that theologically in the book of Samuel, we get a shadow of the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 promise in 
the kingdom of Israel. Saul becomes Israel's first king. It is ironic, isn't it, that Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. As we know, Saul rebelled against Yahweh. Saul did not believe Yahweh's promises, and so he did not obey Yahweh's commands. And 1 Samuel 15 tells us that Yahweh rejected Saul. And then David is anointed king. And David is a shadow of the true and final king. 1 Samuel 13, 14, Yahweh calls David a man after his own heart. And King David ruled over Israel for what even to this day would be considered the golden age of Israel's kingdom. In the entire history of Israel as a geopolitical entity, they had no better days than when King David ruled in Jerusalem. And yet, David sinned. David sinned in an egregious manner. David sinned in a devastating manner. David destroyed his family. People died because of David's sin. David is a shadow, but he is not the priest king of Genesis 3.15. Solomon. Solomon did many great things, but Solomon also lived a life of avarice and sexual sin. And so by the time we get to the end of Samuel and Kings, we see David, Solomon, their sons, these are not the fulfillment of the promise. We're still waiting. As Solomon was king of Israel, him and his sons, they lead Israel uh, into idolatry and child sacrifice and sexual immorality. And this goes on for generation after generation until finally God exiles them from the land. And to this day, 2023, from the time of the exile, there has not been a Jewish king in Jerusalem. Not once. Not for one second. God removed the kingship from Israel. There was a true and better king. David was not the answer. Solomon was not the answer. And as the Old Testament comes to a close, Israel and the rest of humanity, we're, all, we're still waiting. Who is this priest king? Who is the one promised in Genesis 3.15? We're waiting for him to arrive. We're waiting for the new federal head of humanity. And as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we turn from the pages of promise to the pages of fulfillment. And Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy. And that genealogy takes us from Abraham through King David to the Lord Jesus Christ. The opening words of the New Testament are this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Matthew 1.1. The New Testament could not be more explicit that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 promise. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the true and final federal head of humanity. Jesus is the true and final king. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the son of David. Last week, Pastor Bobby preached on the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 says that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Jesus is God's rightful king. Jesus is God's rightful king because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And that's important. That's essential. That's non-negotiable. That's why we confess in the creeds, in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary because... Jesus did not inherit a sin nature. Jesus was conceived not by a man and a woman, but by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is born and conceived not in sin, but of a virgin. Jesus did not inherit Adam's sin nature. That's why if a church doesn't believe in the virgin birth, run. It's, your, it's the gospel. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, no sin nature. Jesus is truly human. He is truly God and truly human, yet no sin nature. And so Jesus of Nazareth never sinned. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus never sinned by what he did or by what he left undone. Jesus always loved God with his whole heart. Jesus always always loved his neighbor as himself. And because Jesus never sinned, because Jesus never broke God's law, because Jesus never broke one of the Ten Commandments in thought, word, or deed, because Jesus never rebelled against God, because that's true, Jesus earned righteous standing before God in the place of the elect. And when Jesus died on the cross as the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of the elect. The penalty of death that had to be paid. For you see, God told Adam that the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree, he would surely die. Genesis 2.17. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die or else the penalty for sin would not be paid for us. So he lived in our place. He lived the way that we were supposed to live. And then even though he didn't deserve the death that we deserve because of our sin, he never sinned, he also died in our place so that the penalty for our sin could be paid by his death. But church, the only power that death has to hold us 
The only reason that everyone doesn't get up out of the grave after they die is because they're guilty. Guilt is the power of death. Death can hold you. Death holds you because you're guilty, because you deserve to die. But Jesus wasn't guilty. Jesus never sinned, so death could not hold Jesus. So on the third day, the Lord Jesus resurrected from the dead as the new federal head of humanity. Jesus earned the righteousness, Jesus paid the penalty, and Jesus got back up. And it's almost like the world was recreated and there's a new Adam. This new world where there's going to be no sin, where sin's already going to be paid for, where it's going to be a behind us, it has to start with a man. Just like the first world started with a man. And when Jesus walked out of the tomb on Easter morning, it was like Adam getting up from the ground on that sixth day. Jesus is the last Adam. He's the federal head of humanity. He's the firstborn of the dead. Jesus is the true and final priest king. This is made evident by his ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus ascended to God's right hand where he has been in session, ruling and reigning as the king of the church and the sovereign of creation, as our statement of faith says. Jesus has been doing that for over 2,000 years now. And one day, Jesus will return to raise the dead, to judge the world, and to make all things new. Jesus is the rightful king. So we, we see why we need a king. We see who the rightful king is. And the final thing we're going to see this morning is what is the right response then to our king? If Jesus is the king, how shall we now live? What is the right response? Because Jesus became king through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, because Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, because King Jesus has been ruling and reigning for 2,000 years, because King Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, there is only one reasonable response to that message. There's an old Christian hymn. It's called Trust and Obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The only reasonable response to the good news of Jesus Christ is to trust and obey. Any other response is unreasonable reasonable. We must trust King Jesus. We must obey King Jesus. And the first and most important way that we trust Christ is through repentance and faith. You must repent and believe the gospel. To repent means to confess your sin and to turn from your sin. Repentance means to agree with what the Bible says about God's holiness and your sin and then to turn away from your sin and toward refuge in Christ. And if you do repent, if you do confess, if you do turn, 
that then is proof that God has given you the gift of faith. How do, say, how do I know? How do I know that I have faith? How do I know that I have genuine faith? It's, if I, can't, I can't attain it on my own. God has to give it to me. How do I know that God's given me faith? Well, the Reformed tradition has long defined faith in terms of three facets. And so I'm going to give you these three facets of faith, and I want you to sit now and evaluate your own heart and mind and think, is this true of me? Because if this is true of me, and I, I have repented and I am repenting, then, then I, I can rest in, in the good news of Jesus and my faith. But if we, if we move through these three facets of faith, and you're like, I, I don't really line up with all of that then you're not a Christian. You don't have faith. And you need to repent and believe, if that is true. So the three facets of faith. How do you know if you have genuine faith in Jesus? The first facet of faith is knowledge. Do you know everything you need to know about Jesus? Do you know that God is holy? Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know that Jesus lived without sin, died in your place, was buried, and rose again on the third day for you and for your salvation? That, that's the knowledge you need. Now, you, you have that knowledge, unless you were ignoring me, which is possible. But if you were listening to what I just said, there's a lot more. To Christianity. There's a lot more to the gospel. There's a lot more to faith than that. But it is no less than that. God is holy. You are a sinner. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the knowledge we need. If you do not have this knowledge, if anyone does not have that knowledge, they are going to hell. This is why we must preach the gospel. This is why we must preach, preach the gospel from every verse in the Bible. This is why you must share the gospel with your unsaved family and friends. That knowledge is necessary, but it's not enough. See, the second facet of faith is that you must have assent. You must assent to the validity of all of those truth claims. What does that mean? You have that knowledge. You know what the Bible says about Jesus. You have to actually think it's true. You have to actually think it's real. You have to believe it. You must actually believe that there is a holy creator God. And you must actually believe that you have sinned against him and deserve hell because of your sin. And you must actually believe that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is your only hope in life and death. It cannot merely be to you, that's what others believe, or that's what Christians believe, or that's what the Bible teaches. You have to take that knowledge and you have to assent. This is not a fairy tale. This is not veggie tales. This is not uh, Sunday school flannel graph that you grow out of. This is the truest thing in the history of thought. 
in the history of the world, in the history of humanity. This is the reason for which everything was created. And you have to know that, and you have to believe that. But that knowledge and that assent, together even, fall short of saving faith. Because there is a third facet of faith, and this is the key element of faith. This is the kicker right here. Trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. So once you have this knowledge, God is holy, you are a sinner, Jesus is the only way. Okay, I, I believe that's true. You must transfer your trust to Jesus alone. What does that mean? You must place the full weight of your trust on the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You must rest in the hope that everything the Bible says about Jesus is true. You must approach Christ as a deer approaches a stream with the acknowledgement of the reality that you have nothing to offer him and that without him, you die. That's what trust is. So I ask you again, do you have faith in Jesus? Have you taken this knowledge of the good news of Christ? Have you assented that it is true? And have you transferred your trust to Jesus alone? If you have, it will be made manifest by your repentance. Repent and believe. And then after you believe, you must continue to exercise that trust for the rest of your life. Church, Jesus is king. That's not just a slogan. That's not just like uh, we come together as a church and we say these things, but then really we go out into the world and we live as if the American government is king or money is king. No, Jesus is king. We must live as such. Because Jesus is king, we can trust that Jesus works everything for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. That's what he said. The Bible is God's word. God has spoken to us through the Bible. So if he said something, it's true. It's intrinsically true. It can't be false. And what God said is that he works all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus is the king. He's doing that. Even when you can't see it. Even when it doesn't feel like it. That's what it means to trust. To rest in such things even when everything in the world and everything inside of you is telling you otherwise. Because Christ reigns, we can cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7. Because Jesus is sovereign, we can look at how he feeds the birds and how he clothes the flowers and we can pray, give us this day our daily bread. 
And we can do so with full confidence that God rejoices to provide for his children. Because Christ sovereignly rules, we can rest in the promise that he will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He did it himself. And he's done it with every saint who has graduated from the church militant to the church triumphant. They have walked through the valley of the shadow of death hand in hand with Jesus. How do I know that? Have I ever seen that happen? How can I be so sure? Because God said it. Because God promised. Church, because Jesus is king, we must trust. It's not easy. It's not our natural inclination. But he's the king. We can trust him. Like Aslan, he may not be tame, but he is good. But we must also obey. Because Jesus is the king. The American cuss word, obedience, obey the king. Oh, some of you, like, even when I say it, you know, you're like, we don't do that. I'm a libertarian. I don't obey anybody. But the sovereign kingship of the Lord Jesus demands our obedience. Sorry. He's the king. Christ has spoken to us fully and finally through his word, the Holy Scriptures. So how do you know how to obey Jesus? Well, the Bible tells you because this is his word. Everything he tells you in here, you must obey. I must obey. We must obey because he's the king. We must obey the Bible even when the world and the flesh and the devil entice us to do otherwise. We must obey the Bible when we're told that we're on the wrong side of history. We must obey the Bible even if it costs us our reputation, our relationships, our finances, our lives. The fact that Jesus is the king of the world means that what we're doing this morning isn't merely cultural, religious tradition. It's not an arbitrary worldview. The fact that Jesus is king means that there is one man in the history of the world who is right. Just one. There is one man in the history of the world who did what God required. And God anointed him king. 
He is in charge. And one day he will return. And people who do not trust in him will go to hell. That's how serious this is. The fact that Jesus is king means there are eternal consequences to whether or not you trust in the gospel of King Jesus. And so the gospel beckons you even now. Repent and believe while it is still today. Trust, rest, believe, hope. Repent, obey. So all year long, the city of Boston has been doing these, all these celebrations for the Boston Tea Party, 250th anniversary. And this, these festivities continue all the way until the 16th of December, because that's the 250th anniversary. And there's all sorts of things going on, right? I was on the Boston like municipal website earlier this week, and all of the uh, different festivities. They've got reenact, reenactments and feasts and probably a lot of tea that people will be drinking in celebration of our rebellion against our former king. But you know what, church? We're kind of doing that today. We kind of do that every year with Christ the King Sunday. In fact, we kind of do it every Sunday as we gather to celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus. We're not celebrating, though, our rebellion against the King of Kings. We're acknowledging our rebellion. We do that every week in the confession and pardon. But we're celebrating the good news that in spite of our rebellion, King Jesus saved us anyway. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. King Jesus saves us through his life, death, and resurrection. And what do we do, church? Every Sunday, we celebrate with a feast. And this feast reenacts that good news. The bread, his body broken for us. The wine, his blood shed for us. So we paused this past Thursday, even as Americans, to give thanks. But as Christians, we give thanks every single week. That's what the word Eucharist means. It means to give thanks. And so now, we will prepare to take the Eucharist together. And church, as we do so we will collectively raise a glass to the skull-crushing king who is sitting at God's right hand. And we will say, Happy Christ the King Sunday. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask in your mercy, that you would keep your promise that your word would not return void. We ask, Lord, for any who are in the gathering this morning who have not repented, who have not believed in your Son, the Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes through the preaching of the gospel and that they would see that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than their idolatry. That Jesus is better than their sin. That Jesus is better than their self-centered living. Father, we ask 
that you would make their heart believe. They can't do it on their own. They cannot save themselves. They can't want it enough. They can't see it clearly enough. It is only if your Holy Spirit raises their heart from the dead. But God, you promised that through the preaching of the gospel that you would raise dead hearts. So once again, we ask that you would keep your promise this morning, Father. We ask that you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would give us the desire and the ability to trust and obey King Jesus. That our lives would be postured as King Jesus taught us to pray when he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you are a 